Thank you, Amy, for that ministry and music. November 22nd, 1963, is a date that all of us who were old enough to experience will never forget. If you're old enough to remember 1963, you probably remember well where you were on the day that you heard that President John F. Kennedy had been shot. President Kennedy was fatally shot while traveling with his wife Jacqueline, Texas Governor John Connolly, and Connolly's wife Natalie in a presidential motorcade. He was shot at 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time and pronounced dead at 1 o'clock after having been rushed to Parkland Hospital. At age 46, he was the youngest present president ever to die. Upon the death of President Kennedy, which came as such a great shock to our nation and ultimately the entire world, the question was asked and an answer was demanded as to how this could happen. How could the President of the United States ever be assassinated? And so our U.S. Senate authorized the Warren Commission to examine the circumstances surrounding the president's assassination. They made a 10-month ten, ten investigation, 1963 to 1964, and they concluded, after that thorough 10-month investigation, that the assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, had acted alone. That there wasn't any conspiracy. But still the question was asked, but how could that have, have happened? How did our president come to be shot? Jerry Blaine was head of the Secret Service, and he was questioned as to the role of the Secret Service, for there were some abnormalities that day. And he testified that Four days before the fateful 1963 motorcade in Dallas, President John F. Kennedy had requested the Secret Service to uh, give him, quote, some space while he was in Dallas. Blaine said, and I quote, President Kennedy made a decision. And he politely told everybody, you know, we're starting the campaign now and the people are my asset. End of quote. And so, he said, we were instructed to stay away from the president's vehicle. He also had made a very deliberate but controversial decision to ride that day in a convertible with a top down. The actions of the Secret Service agents were one contributing factor in the conspiracy theory, uh, conspiracy theory surrounding Lee Harvey Oswald. Today, recently, 
yet another poll was taken as to the Americans' view of the assassination of President Kennedy. And uh, according to this poll, 83% of Americans still believe that there must have been some kind of conspiracy. How could one man have pulled this off? Is there a relevance for that question for us today? I believe that there is. I believe, I believe there is. Do we really believe that the actions of the Secret Service, no matter how diligent, no matter how faithful, no matter how insightful, no matter how careful, that they can actually guarantee the safety of the President of the United States, I would submit to you they can't. The reason I chose to begin this message with this account is because, ironically, President Kennedy was to give a speech that day. And in that speech, he was going to recite Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. To me, there's an incredible irony in that fact. There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. That was President Kennedy's time to die. In the passage that is before us, I said I was going to spend a number of weeks in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 for uh, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. I find it to be absolutely fascinating. And I believe that chapter 3 is a very pivotal section in this book. And if you remember, I was talking last week about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And I was emphasizing the sovereignty of God as we see it in Ecclesiastes and in the world around us. Today, I want to emphasize human responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. Human responsibility in light of God's sovereignty. We see human responsibility in Ecclesiastes 3 in a number of ways. First, all of the events that are referred to in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 are events that humans participate in. As opposed to in the earlier chapters of 1 and 2, the events of the wind and the moon and the uh, rivers, how that goes on and on. It's talking about all of the acts of creation in the earlier chapters. Get to chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. All of these are events within the sphere of our human lives. A time to be born. Time to die, time to kill, time to heal, time to plant up, a, a, a time uh, uh, to gather, a time to uh, throw away. All of these events are events within mankind's human experience. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9, there, there's a question that's asked. 
And the question is, what profit is there to the work, worker from which that which he toils? What is the benefit to our labor? What's the benefit to our decisions? What is the benefit to our choices in life? Where does all of that get us? If you would turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3, I'd like you to, to see the, the parallel that exists in this question. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. Ecclesiastes 1, 3. It, it reads, What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun. If you look at chapter 3, verse 9, and chapter 1, verse 3, they appear to be almost identical. Quite, quite similar. Questions are being raised with one caveat. And that is back in Ecclesiastes 1, verse 3, there is a phrase which is omitted in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 9. That phrase is key. For it states in Ecclesiastes 1.3, what advantage does, this, does man have in all his work? And then the phrase, which he does under the sun. Which he does under the sun. If you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 1, we read that there is an appointed time for every thing and there is a time for every element under heaven, every purpose. Every event under heaven. And so we have in chapter 1, verse 3, under the sun, and in chapter 3, verse 1, under heaven. And I've pointed out numerous times, but I think that I can't say it often enough, that we need to make the contrast in Ecclesiastes when it's talking about under the sun and under heaven. Under the sun is the earthly perspective. It's looking at life and taking a sovereign God out of the picture. Under heaven is a recognition of a sovereign working of God. And life looks tremendously different when you leave God out of the picture. And you bring God into the picture, life takes on a brand new perspective. The concluding issues of chapters 1 and 2 is that life is meaningless. Life is vain. Take God out of the picture, and life doesn't seem to have a lot of rhyme or reason. I'm not going to go through all the review that I, I did last week, but remember that in chapter 9 it talked about how one event happens to all. Chance was found in that verse. And I said there is no such thing as chance or bad luck or good luck. It isn't the answer to why things happen. President Kennedy was not unlucky on that fateful day in November. It was all within the plans of a sovereign God. I chose for us to sing this morning. Uh, God moves in a, a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. And one of the reasons I decided that we would sing that is because of the line within the stanza that says that, that man, in his unbelief, he searches in vain to understand. 
And what the Warren Commission failed to understand, and our nation, with its desire to come up with some kind of conspiracy theory, where they leave out in answering the question, how could this happen, is they're leaving out a sovereign God. A God who has at work. And man fails to see it. And not just in the events surrounding the president's death, but in all the events that we experience in our lives. What, from a human perspective, is meaningless, finds within this framework of a sovereign God purpose and meaning. What is, to me, fascinating is that those individuals who want to reject the absolute sovereignty of God, the fact that He is actually in control of all things, and especially when it comes to salvation. And that we have a God who chooses from eternity past the people unto himself. That usually the argument that is raised against that is that that must make us some kind of robot. That must make our choices in life meaningless. But what is fascinating to me is that Ecclesiastes, when it takes God out of the picture and sees man as being the ultimate decision-making person in their own life, comes to recognize that those decisions are meaningless. And yet, when we have a sovereign God who rules over this world, our decisions become purposeful. And they have meaning. And it is an exact opposite of what one would tend to think Apart from the scriptures. So this morning I want to look at our human responsibility in living under a sovereign God. You look at Ecclesiastes 3.10. It says, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. I have seen the task which God has given to the sons of men to occupy themselves. This task, this task which is ultimately described in the poem of Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 8, the task of determining how one should live one's life, the task of trying to understand the times in which we live What is the right thing for us to do today in the season of life which we live as a young person, as a a middle-aged person, as an old person, and in the entirety of our lives? What does God want us to do? That's the task that God has given to us. He said, I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. The phrase... The task which God has given is very instructive. 
For this God-given task, that's how it's described. A task, not that man is taken upon himself, but rather a God-given task. A declared task. A decreed task. A task that God has made our responsibility. Which implies two things, then. It is a necessary task, if we are given this task to do. And it's a possible task, if God has given us this task to do. We have a God-given necessity and responsibility to make determinations in our lives as to how they are to be lived, how we are to engage in certain activities in our lives. In Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 7, we have this verse. Even the stork in the sky knows her seasons. And the turtle dove and the swift and the thrush observe the time of their migration. But my people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. In that verse, there is a capsulation of the responsibility of Israel. And God likens them unto unknowing, unreasoning animal, animals that know what they're to do. Now, we put the no in quotes, it's probably an instinct. But nonetheless, these animals respond at the proper time and do what they're to do. Namely, in this instance, migrate. They know the time, they know the season, they know what they're to do, and they're to do it. But he says, but my people don't know the time. They don't understand. And ultimately, because they don't obey me. They don't follow my instruction. They fail to migrate, as it were, when they are to migrate. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, we are introduced to the idea that the understanding of our times and our duty is, list, is limited. Ecclesiastes 3.11 He has made everything appropriate. I still like the King James word there, beautiful, in his time. Appropriate certainly is a part of that beauty. Uh, that uh, recognizing the value of doing the right thing at the right time is a part of that beauty. But beauty, to me, takes on even more of a, a fuller nuance of this Hebrew word that's filled with all kinds of meanings. But certainly, appropriate is one, and appointed is another. It's a determined time of God. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart with this, revolt, with this result, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. This task of understanding what God is doing and what we are to do in our lives is a difficult task. It is an arduous task, Ecclesiastes says. And beyond that, it's a task that we can't fully comprehend. 
There's always going to be this mystery as to what God is doing in our lives. We can know it to an extent. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know that part of that purpose is to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that God is molding us. We know that God is shaping us. We know that God is directing us. But there is a mystery to the overall overarching purpose of God as to how our lives fit into that greater scheme of things. Deuteronomy 29.29 puts it this way. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong unto us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. We need to understand that balance. The secret things belong unto God. There are things that God has not revealed. God has not told us about this world, about even our own lives, about his reason in calling us. There are things that are hidden from our understanding. And then there are things that are made known to us. And the things that are made known unto us are our bivouac. They are our area of study. They are given to us with the intent that we will heed and obey. And so we find about time, there are things that are hidden from us that we can't understand in God's purposes and God's timing. And there are things that we can understand. And the things that we can understand are our responsibility to respond to God in appropriate fashion and to yield to his teaching and direction in our lives. We find in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God has set eternity in their heart. God has set eternity in their heart. Now, what does that mean? And uh, the commentators take a lot of different uh, views as to what it means that God has set eternity in their hearts. And I would submit to you that it means at least this. It could mean a whole lot more, but I believe it means at least this. That there is within mankind as a result of looking at creation, as a result of, of human conscience, there is the understanding of mankind that there must be something more to this life. There's got to be a reason for my being here. There's got to be a purpose. There is a reason that the purpose-driven life was such a huge bestseller. Not just within the Christian community, but within the secular community as well. Why? Because there is that desire for mankind to know, why am I here? What am I to do with my life? Does my life count for anything? Does it mean anything? And when you take God out of the picture, it's why Solomon despairs. And says, man, nothing matters. 
Nothing matters. My being here doesn't matter. And even a non-Christian worldview understands that there's something lacking in that answer. There must be a purpose. There must be a reason. The second thing I want to point out to you is that eternity is not timeliness, timelessness, or absence of time. Eternity is not an existence apart from time. Eternity is time stretching both farther back and farther forward than we can ever imagine. Eternity past is stretching back and we look down a corridor of time that is never ending. And then we turn our head and there is eternity future. And we look down a corridor of time that is never ending. Time stretches as far back and as far forward as we can ever imagine and beyond what we can imagine. Thus, the events of Ecclesiastes 3, 2, and 8 are on a timeline. Think of eternity and think of a, a timeline. God is at work. God has a purpose. God is moving us forward. We are not on an endless cycle. We are not just in a never-ending cyclical passion p- pattern of history repeating itself over and over and over again. We are progressing, people. We're going forward. We are on a destination. We are on a trajectory. We are on a path. God is leading not just us, His creation, to an eternal future that never ends. We are on a path. And each of our lives are dots on that timeline. Each of us flow into that meta-narrative of God's ultimate purpose and direction for creation. All of us, somewhere, enter that timeline. David did before us. Abraham did before him. Adam and Eve did before them. But they were on that timeline. And we are on that timeline that God is moving forward. It is tough for us to see what is God's purpose in that big timeline for our little dot. It's difficult to say without question. 
we do know that Ephesians 8, 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then verse 10, which most people leave off, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus and the good works, which God before has ordained that we should walk in them. God saved us for good works. God saved us for a purpose. And so, our life fits into the ultimate purpose of the Creator God. He's using us. Now, within that dot, which is our life on that timeline, you can zero in. This guy, you can do with a computer uh, figure, you know. And, and uh, I love these composites where you, you see a face, and then they zoom in, and you realize that face is made up of a lot of little faces. You know, I'd love to get a composite done of our church so that we'd have a picture of a church, but the church is really made up of all the little faces. It's the people that, that create the church. You've seen those things. Well, as we zero in on God's timeline and we look at our own little dot, we find out there are a lot of little events in our lives. And those little events in our lives, make up our dot, which fits into the overall arching and purpose of God. There is a great deal of planning on the part of God. We do not live in a random universe. We do not live in a universe governed by chance. God has an appointed time. Ephesians 1, 3 and following says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. We go back in time, and we go back in time before God even made the earth before the foundation of the world, before he created the earth. God had a purpose. He chose you and me. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, he chose you and me. Before. He made anything. He had a purpose. He had a reason. He had a rhyme for your life. There is a reason you are here. There is a reason you are saved. There is a reason you are experiencing what you are in your life. God has a purpose for us. God thought ahead, if you will. Now, God has entrusted us with a responsibility. And that is to ascertain that purpose. To the best of our knowledge. To the best of our wisdom. To answer the question, why am I here? And we can all say, it's to do the good works which God before ordained that we should walk at them. We can all say, along with the Westminster Confession, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's true of each and every one of us 
who knows the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. That's a universal truth. But then we have to break it down and ask ourselves, but more significantly, more, more particularly, but, but, but what about me individually? What does God want me to do? How does that fit into the overarching purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him forever? I want you to see, and it's going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, so I don't want to run too far ahead. But God does not just relate to us in mass, but individually. And he did so before the foundation of the earth. And he will continue to do so within into the new heaven and new earth. Thus, our lives have an eternal impact. Listen to the words of Revelation chapter 14, verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. And then these incredible words, for their deeds follow with them. Their deeds follow with them. Their works go with them. Did you ever... Contemplate that. Do you ever really stop and and think about what that means? That our deeds mean something in eternity future. What you're doing today impacts eternity future. It's not just about this existence. It's about all of existence. So our lives are very important in the plan and will of a sovereign God. So, having said all that, Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, very quickly, verses 1 through 8. And we spent so much time with that, it's going to have to be extremely quickly. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8. And there is a list here, a very beautiful list, a very all-inclusive list. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2, a time to give birth, or as other translations, a time to be born, which I prefer as the translation. A time to be born and a time to die. So it looks at life in its totality. From beginning to end, there is a time. And then verses 1b on through verse 8, then talk about all those things within that framework of a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time for all these other things. The list is meant to be, I believe, Radical and shocking. Radical and shocking. Because we find in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 verse 8, that there is an appointed time for all the experiences that we encounter in life. That there is a beauty to all of these things. In the hands of a sovereign God. And there is a right time for all these things. 
And I say they are shocking because mankind invariably, invariably fails to understand the appropriate times. Even you and me. For notice, Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 through 8, I'm going to read it. And I'm, I'm just going to ask you to say, well, why don't we say it together? After each of these couplets, I just want to raise the question. I want you to say with me, when is the right time? When is the right time? First, a time to give. Uh, excuse me. A time to plant and a time to plant um, uh, and a time to uproot what is planted. When is the right time? A time to kill and a time to heal. When is the right time? A time to tear down and a time to build up. When is the right time? A time to weep and a time to laugh. When is the right time? A time to mourn. A time to dance. When is the right time? A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. When is the right time? A time to embrace and a time to shut embracing. When is the right time? A time to search and a time to give up as lost. When is the right time? A time to keep and a time to throw away. When is the right time? A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. When is the right time? A time to be silent and a time to speak. When is the right time? A time to love and a time to hate. When is the right time? And a time for war and a time for peace. When is the right time? Now, some of these seem almost inconsequential. But yet, they are decisions we have to make. Okay? Such as a, when is a time to keep and a time to throw away? Uh, my wife and I are very different people. I am a hoarder. She is a chucker. Uh, she wants everything neat and orderly, and she wants to streamline things and get rid of anything that is inconsequential. Let's get down to the bare necessities. I, on the other hand, am not particularly neat. I'm not particularly orderly, and I don't want to get rid of anything, because someday you may use it. Well, yard sales around our house are kind of funny. Because my wife will set up the tables, and she'll be carrying things out as I'm standing outside carrying things in. Because we can't agree on what ought to go on these stupid little tables and get rid of. We don't agree on when is the right time to throw away, and when is the right time to keep. Now, I say that in a kind of humorous fashion because a lot of the events in life don't really seem to be all that significant, but yet in the hands of the sovereign God really are. But there are other events that, that we view as momentous, and many times we fail to recognize and appreciate the, the proper time. So let me look at two extremes. One is, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. And you have to forgive me, I'm really 
overshot my wad here, so I'm going to kind of wing it to try to land this plane on time. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to look at these two ends of the spectrum. So a time to kill. A time to kill. You realize that many people would say there is no such thing as appropriate time to kill. But the scripture says there is a time to kill. There's a time to kill. When is that time? That is a question that ought to plague us as human beings. And it's a time that we have to answer in all of our existences. And we need to know the Word of God if we're going to answer that correctly. You see, it has significance for abortion. Is, it, is that the time? It has significance for the issues of capital punishment. Is that the time? It has significance for the issues of euthanasia. Mercy killing. Is that the time? You see, and all of us have to wrestle with those, with those issues. And I raise a Pandora's box and don't have time to answer all those things. But let me just declare to you my position is, yes, there's a time for capital punishment. But boy, we better know what it is. And there's not a time for euthanasia. For our days are in the hands of the sovereign God. He's not placed that within our our, uh, view and our responsibility. But C. Everett Koop has made a very, very helpful distinction for me, which is he speaks about the difference between prolonging life and prolonging death. We don't have the responsibility to prolong death, but we cannot bring death to bear when it comes to mercy killing or euthanasia. I'm just pointing out to you that that these are, are tough things. And then let's look at the last one. A time for war and a time for peace. You see, because there have been good Christians that have been trying to live their lives in ways that yet I, I believe are unacceptable to God. And one of the distinctions that has been present within different entities of evangelicalism is uh, the difference from the Reformed community. Uh, Reformed churches speak in terms of just wars. Some of the churches outside of the Reformed community that tend to be Arminian speak of pacifism. And believe that the, the proper response to any, keyword, any aggression is pacifism. I submit to you that Ecclesiastes 3.8 takes pacifism off the table. There's a time for war. 
in the sovereign working of God, we do his bidding at times by going to war. We were in a Sunday school class this morning, which uh, our brother Eric Herb was looking at Second Samuel. And he talked about how kings went to war based on going and asking God, should we go up? Should we not go up? Is this a war we're to fight? Or is this a war we're not to fight? And God would say at times, go up. And other times he'd say, don't go up. Not all wars are of God. But some wars are. We bear the responsibility of asking ourselves in each of these instances, when is the right time? And it's overly simplistic and downright wrong as you look at these verses to say, well, there's never the right time. That's never right. That's not what it says. There is an appropriate time for all these things. There is an appropriate time to mourn. There is an appropriate time to dance. And many within evangelicalism would fail to see that. But there's a reality to these things. To rejoice with those that rejoice, weep with those that weep, celebrate with those that celebrate, mourn with those that mourn. Our responsibility in life is to answer these questions correctly. And that will bring joy to your life when you do. That will bring honor and glory to God when you do. And it will serve purposes that are far beyond anything that we can understand when we do. Because a sovereign God is at work. And using us in ways that we cannot imagine. But just in case you were here today and you weren't here last week, I want you to understand that God is sovereign and He overrules. I talked about that person who puts a bullet gun in their head and decides they're going to end their life and they pull the trigger and they find it doesn't even kill them. We are more than just our decisions. But our decisions matter. And we should give careful thought and foresight to all that we think and all that we do. Is this the right time? Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us, Lord, as we look at our lives. We find that there is much that is beyond our control. And we're thankful for your your leading and direction. And then we see much that appears to be under our control, and we know that that's not the case either. We know that we are more than just the sum total of all our decisions. That there's a sovereign God that's at work. And yet, oh God, our lives are not meaningless. They are purposeful for you have a purpose for them. And we find that many times we can either go, go kicking and screaming, seeking to resist your will and 
have you discipline us and correct us and redirect us and be like the children of Israel who take 40 years to travel what should take just a few months. Or, Lord, we can take a much direct route. But I, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to see that our lives are meaningful, purposeful, all because we serve a Creator God who had a plan from beginning to end, and you decided to include us in that plan, and you decided to use us within that plan, and our lives are going to be lived with you in the eternity future, individually, even as we were chosen individually. And our works have a bearing on that, a reason for that. So, Lord, help us not to say, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. Help us to say, beautiful, beautiful, life is beautiful. And help us, Lord, to make wise decisions, to glorify you, to beautify our own lives, and to do your will and your bidding. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.